when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. Happy holidays, friends. This week, we have a special treat for everybody. We are welcoming back the authors of our four favorite books of 2016 to celebrate their accomplishments and hopefully convince you that if you need last minute or late gifts for the people you love, you couldn't do better than these reads. With us today, David Dayan, author of Chain of Title, Thomas Frank, author of Listen Liberal, Sarah Jaffe, the author of Necessary Trouble, and our own Elliot Nelson, who wrote The Beltway Bible. Do you want some more festive? Well, we have got some more festive. Oregon Representative Earl Blumenauer is with us today with an important Christmas message. Fruitcake doesn't have to suck. It really doesn't. And Congressman Blumenauer should know because he has perfected a fine fruitcake recipe and he's using his baking skills to give back to his community. Finally, I guess we really wouldn't be on brand if we didn't give you guys some bad news. So what have we got? Oh, yeah, here's a real kick in the pants. Have you heard about Donald Trump's incoming Labor Secretary, Andy Puzder? He's basically best known as a serial target of the Department of Labor for various wage theft and workplace safety violations. And now he'll be in charge of that agency. I tell you what, this Trump administration is going to be populist as fuck. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Dave Jameson. And here's what happened first. And we're back, and uh, we're once again back to the subject of sort of a forward-looking sense of speculation about the coming doom that may befall us, or may not, Donald Trump takes over the White House. And uh, today we're going to turn our attention now to the future of organized labor and labor rights in the country. Uh, Zach Carter is here. Hi, everyone. As is his want. And uh, we're very happy to have uh, uh, our own... uh, labor and business reporter Dave Jameson hanging out with us too. Good to be here. So uh, <clears throat> we we sort of like get a sense of what's going on with Trump's thinking uh, because in the beginning of the month we saw him uh, first of all endeavor uh, with Mike Pence to try to, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll charitably say, save a portion of jobs that carrier manufacturer of air conditioners and heating furnaces uh, were going to be sending to Mexico. And I believe that the deal wrought was tax breaks for carrier that in turns would subsidize some 700 jobs to remain in the country and 350 other jobs that weren't slated to go out of the country, but were subsidized by this deal anyway. And then another portion of workers are lost to Mexico. And then we also got a sense of like the kind of person that he was going to pick as labor secretary. Um, and uh, why don't you tell us what you think about it, Dave? 
You ever been to a Hardee's or a Carl's Jr.? Uh, I have, man. I used to go to Hardee's in Richmond, Virginia when I was going to grad school there, and it was open late, and we would go and get, like, like midnight, well, like, literally, like, like 3 or 4 a.m. breakfast. Well, then you've gotten a taste of this new <laughs> labor secretary. <laughs> so it'll be smothered. It's like biscuits, bad biscuits and gravy, basically. <laughs> Right, so who so who is this guy? Andy Puzder. He is the the CEO of CKE Restaurants, which is really just the the parent company of of the Hardee's and Carl's Jr. brands. He's been running the company since '97, and he's a he's a fast food honcho. It's uh, it, I think it's really kind of symbolic of what's going on here because we're going to see. So much of what President Obama did essentially reversed uh, in policy, and we're going to see all enforcement. You know, going sort of in the other direction, I'm talking broadly about EPA, you know, Health and Human Services. But labor, I mean, you know, President Obama kind of there was a fight for 15 going on where you had fast food workers around the country rallying for higher minimum wages, uh, you know, collective bargaining rights on the job. And Trump is literally uh, taking a a boss from that world, uh, those workers boss and installing him as the top watchdog of the American workplace. Uh, so it's a very, very interesting time. You know, the background on Puzder, I mean, people are la- laughing because it's Hardee's and, and stuff, but this guy, he's a serious person in, conserv- in conservative politics. People have known him for a long time. He's written a lot of op-eds. Uh, he's, he's blogged a lot. He goes on television, and he's made his kind of worldview pretty clear. And it's it's sort of, it's very classic Republican. He, he believes in, in, you know, minimal regulations, as a fast food executive, not surprisingly, he's not a huge fan of the of the minimum wage going up. Uh, he's not opposed to the minimum wage in principle. Uh, he, you know, he has said. Well, he, how about that? Yeah. Well, honestly, <laughs> it's crazy to say. I but, would pay people given given the uh, given my druthers. But honestly, him not saying it should be abolished would actually make him somewhat of a moderate in in these circles. Yeah. In well, it's certainly among a lot of GOP lawmakers. You know, uh, Lamar Alexander, who heads up the Labor Committee in the Senate, has said. The minimum wage should be abolished. Yeah. So um, that said, I mean, the guy, you know, he, he clearly does not think this the minimum wage should go up. Um, he he hates uh, the president's overtime reforms, which are a really big deal. This was the whole idea was bringing four million new workers these these protections uh, that they get time and a half when they work more than forty hours. Andy Puzder ha- has been been banging against that uh, ever since it was floated two years ago, and so. I think the name is a big surprise to a lot of people, but not if you were in this world. I mean, Hugh Hewitt's been been stumping for this guy uh, and others to become the labor secretary, and and, and it's happening. Um, So, you know, I think it's really – it's very much in line with, with, you know, who he's choosing price to run health and human services – um, you know, his his EPA pick, you know, having having sued the EPA, Puzder, uh, you know, has basically, you know, as a fast food CEO has been, you know, his restaurants have been investigated by the Labor Department. Now the, he's the guy who's going to be running the Labor Department's so investigation. Why has the Labor Department been investigating him? Well, not him himself, but but Hardee's and Carl's okay. Jr. locations, right? He, uh, you know, the fast food... Um, you know, it, it's a franchise system, right, where, where Hardee's, you know, you sh- strike an arrangement with some business person who runs a Hardee's or a Carl's Jr. Those places, um, 
you know, that they're frequently the subject of wage and hour investigations where workers say I wasn't paid the minimum wage. I've been going through the just today a lot of the filings on, on this, and they frequently find violations at Hardy's and Carl's Jr. locations. Now, Puzder himself doesn't run those places, but this is all under his brand, right? Right. Yeah. right. Um, and the, the Obama Labor Department has been very aggressive in going after wage, uh, theft. wage theft and, and, and specifically in, in the fast food industry. Now, what does this say about sort of the scope of the Democratic Party's, uh, let's say, uh, commitment to or interest in labor union politics more broadly? Because like you said, there's quite a bit of enforcement going on that we saw, particularly under Labor Secretary Tom Perez. Um, you know, there's been, he did raise the minimum wage, went up on, on, on Obama's watch. Uh, but, you know, some of the, some of the things that, that labor unions wanted, the really big picture things like the card check bill, this is a legislation mm-hmm. that would make it easier for labor unions to form, for instance. Um, you know, trade policy. Obama opposed labor unions on trade policy pretty much his entire uh, tenure in office. Uh, none of that stuff really happened. And, and then when you have a Republican who comes into office, uh, you know, all of the stuff that he did administratively, that can just be rolled back. I mean, yeah. yeah. What, what does this say about the democratic, because labor unions really have had nowhere else to go for Mm -hmm. a while, right? What does this say about the relationship with the democratic party and and their ability to deliver things for working people? And just to clarify, uh, Obama never did raise the minimum wage. I mean, he wanted to, but he never could. It went up in 2009, but that was because of what president Bush did on on his watch. Yeah. On his watch. He he didn't block it. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it's, uh, everything that the president was able to do and that the party was able to do, um, is very tenuous. Uh, most of the reforms that Obama did, okay, even the overtime thing, that thing is is practically dead in the water right now. Uh, It's tangled up in court. Mm -hmm. And Trump, his new Justice Department could just say, "Eh, you know what, we don't want to defend that thing. Uh, All of these executive orders that he did just get reversed. Uh, Trump gets gets the pen on January 20th. So anything that, that, that the president and that the party was able... Uh, to do on this front for organized labor or for low-wage workers um, was pretty precarious. And in talking with people lately, uh, a lot of union presidents and such, uh, talking about assessing Obama's legacy when it comes to the workplace, and most people seem to be in agreement that uh, he he did a lot of well-meaning things, particularly late in his presidency the last couple years. He got kind of aggressive and did all this executive action. But there was nothing that really changed the game in, in the mm-hmm. way our, our economy works. Um, you know, you brought up card check. Uh, this was something that there was a window to do it when you had a, a Democrat in the White House and Democrats controlled um, the House and Senate. That's something that would have made it much easier for workers to join labor unions. Uh, they, they did Obamacare. They lost uh, the Congress, and then they couldn't do the card check. So there were these missed opportunities where things could have been done to kind of recalibrate the scales and how things work. They never came to pass. And so you've had unions that have, have you know, they're basically, um, you know, in, in a decades-long decline, and they were in something of a stasis, at least in Washington under Obama, but they weren't gaining ground, really, okay? Mm-hmm. And now they're going to have a hostile, hostile atmosphere. They're going to have a hostile Congress and a hostile White House. 
and I think it's going to kind of accelerate the existential crisis that, that organized labor is in. And I think it's going to be a dark period, whether it's four years or eight years. He's going to uh, install a labor board that is not at all sympathetic to unions. Uh, his Supreme Court pick, um, there are going to be huge Supreme Court cases, one that will likely when it comes along, basically make the public sector a right-to-work zone, uh, which is going to lose a lot of funding for unions. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there, there could be decimation ahead, basically. Am I crazy to not see an emerging contradiction in a president who has staked his claim in uh, increasing the fortunes of working-class Americans? Uh, he took the victory lap on the carrier deal. And then subsequently went to war with carriers' workers when they had the temerity through union representatives to point out that a lot of what he was saying about how good the deal was wasn't true and that many of their members still got screwed. And, of course, it was kind of a -a whack-a-mole job. Even in Indiana, you had other companies uh, in the same industry, in the same sector, leaving for Mexico. So it was still kind of a a stupid little whack-a-mole job and net loss to labor in that state. How How do you think... Donald Trump squares these circles and presents himself as this sort of like uh, paragon for uh, the working class while at the same time taken out of their back pocket. Yeah, it could, you know, when you when you run on this campaign where you're saying you're going to bring back good jobs and raise wages, it does get political politically a little tricky to, to all of a sudden want to take away overtime from like 4 million people. Yeah. Um but everybody he's surrounding himself with um, you know, falls in line with sort of the, the standard conservative view of how of how uh, the economics and, and labor market should work in this country. Yeah. And I think, you know, Andy Puzder putting a fast food CEO um, in charge of uh, monitoring workplaces for wage theft and for safety. This is this is an important point. I mean, it's not, you know, at all abnormal for under a Republican administration yeah, yeah, to install definitely. somebody who's, who is business friendly. We of got course, with John Kasich. But yeah. here you're talking about taking a guy, pulling him directly out of this world um, and having him police it. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, usually, you know, maybe somebody was like, you know, an executive somewhere and then they like spent a few years, you know, being like a, a hack, you know, working in a lobby somewhere. And then and then you, you wind up in government. He's it's you know, a lawyer or a henchman for yes, the CEO, yes, not the CEO right, himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It is the boss, you know, uh, who, who, you know, who is supposed to be policing the bosses. And so I think that's a legitimate concern. And, and you know, I don't want to judge this. I'm not going to judge this guy before he he's starts doing the job. But, you know, he, he has a, a public record behind him, um, you know, of, of where you wonder what he's going to be like as as a, a workplace watchdog. He's in one interview with the LA Times recently. He was saying how great it would be to have um, you know basically robots instead of instead of human workers because robots don't have slip and falls. They don't file discrimination suits against you. They don't show up late. This is the guy who's going to be uh, watching watching the laws and and making sure you, that that you're not. Uh, ripped off or cheated or hurt hurt on the job. And so it's got to make you wonder. Yeah, well, it does. Uh, In the interest of full disclosure, Dave and Zach and I are all members of the Writers Guild of America East. Uh, Thanks, Dave, for being with us, and Zach, of course. And uh, we will be right back.
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, and as many of you know, we like books here at So That Happened. But there are a lot of books that get released every year, and not everybody has time to read all of them. So we read them for you and determined that there were four books this year that you should read. Joining us now to discuss the four best books of the year are the authors themselves, Thomas Frank, Sarah Jaffe, David Dayan, and our own Elliot Nelson. Dave, turning to you, why did you write this book? I know that you, uh, there was, there's years of research being done by you and by the subjects of your book before it came out. So why did you jump on this and write this book? Yeah, I've been following these people for, uh, you know, about six years. I mean, I first encountered them in 2010 and they, they had been doing their research even before that into the foreclosure crisis and, and this this mass scandal of uh, delivering false documents uh, to courtrooms and and uh, county offices all over the country and in just, a just be in specific, a cover up. Just be specific. We talk about these people. They are ordinary homeowners who found themselves in distressed mortgages, were being foreclosed upon, and had to take it upon themselves to do the necessary legal research and networking with each other to try to figure out was go was what was going on beyond all these deep deep scams between banks that's correct this was a used car uh, salesman a cancer nurse and a lawyer who specialized in white collar fraud but uh, of the variety of insurance fraud nothing to do with mortgages so not people in politics or government or activism really uh, foreclosure victims that was the common thread who committed a revolutionary act they they read their own documents and, and when they did that they saw these massive irregularities and then instead of just using that to fight their own cases, they went, you know, to the public records and, and went online and, and realized that there were these patterns, that it was millions of people who were being victimized in this fashion. And then they found each other in the comment sections of websites, and, and, and they decided sort of to make a pact with one another to expose this, that uh, the, the, the industry shouldn't be able to get away with it. And, and they did expose it. Uh, to the extent that at the end of 2010, all the top mortgage companies in America stopped foreclosing because they couldn't anymore do it legally. 
Uh, and they, they brought all this information that they collected. I mean, really going through thousands, tens of thousands, of uh, hundreds of thousands of documents and, and, and compiled it and put it online and, and gave it to the law enforcement officials of this country, both at the state and federal level, and said, do something about this. Here it is, a uh, silver platter. And, uh, and then nothing was done, really. So, <laughs> um, I mean, that's, to me, that's the, the thing that really is frustrating about your book is that in a lot of ways it's – it's a story about how both the federal government and state and local governments just ignored what may have been the biggest economic problem in the country uh, for, for years. How what what is why is that important in, in the era of Trump now? I mean, it, to me, in a lot of ways, this is about sort of Obama era failures. What what did the Trump election uh, say to you about this? Right. So, I mean, you know, I think what we learned in the Trump election is that the social fabric of this country is is fragile. And when you spend years sort of setting up a two-tiered system of justice, when, when who you are matters more than what you did, uh, you tear at that social fabric. When, when, when the largest consumer fraud in the history of America goes relatively unpunished, and when uh, you know, uh, the, the leadership of the country just refuses to fight on behalf of millions and millions of homeowners, uh, then, then, then the rules sort of get thrown out the window. And, and, and people sort of learn that, that there are a different set of rules for the rich and powerful, and they, they decide that they're, they're, they're not going to follow sort of the establishment rules of politics either. And so I do think in a very real way uh, this story uh, the, the, about, you know, the failure to reckon with the foreclosure crisis and the failure to deal with this massive amount of foreclosure fraud really did in some way signal uh, the Trump election. Um, Thomas Frank, you wrote one of our favorite books this year called Listen Liberal. Talk us through how the idea engendered in your head to write this book. It's a history of the Democratic Party and where they went wrong. And uh, where they went wrong on many different levels, but mainly where they went wrong in terms of inequality, uh, the lives of the American public, of working people, the middle class. You know, they used to be the party of the of the middle class. This is zealous defenders of middle class interests, and they aren't anymore. And so I'm I'm like, how did that change? That's a pretty big change. And it didn't start in this election with no, 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 no. It goes way, way, way back. Uh, You know, and it's not something you can blame on Barack Obama. Uh, it goes back to the late 60s and early 70s after their what they saw at the time as a debacle when uh, Hubert Humphrey lost to Richard Nixon. But, you know, in hindsight, it was a very narrow loss. And, and you know, it, 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 you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't all that bad. They still controlled Congress and they were still this you know mighty uh, New Deal sort of force. Anyhow, they set up a commission uh, to uh, to sort of reform the party and change the party's direction. And uh, the commission essentially changed what the Democratic Party was about, who its main constituency was. And they decided they were not going to be the party of the New Deal and organized labor anymore. This is coming out of Vietnam, and organized labor looked pretty bad in those days. They were instead going to focus on uh, white-collar professionals. Uh, and this was, th- this was, by the way, very, very sexy at the time because that was the kids on the college campuses. And, right. You know, protesting that was, the war, which yeah, was but, really bad. Uh, protesting the war, but also every – this is in the late 60s and early 70s. You go back and look at the pop sociology of the time. Everything is about what like saints. This is a generation of saints, you know, of, mm-hmm. of like supermen that are coming out of the, out of the fancy colleges. Anyhow, so they, they decided that that 
was going to be their the 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 main the the, the group that they appealed to most, and. Um, you can understand why they made that decision back then. This is in the early 70s. Uh, uh, economic issue, the issue of economic inequality was not an issue at the time. Right. It was, you know, that was not even on the table. The idea that by making this decision 40 years down the road, they would have ruined the middle class in this country would have never occurred to these people. It was, you know, just so far-fetched at the time. But anyhow, that is where it begins. The sort of main protagonist in the book, or I should say bad guy in Listen Liberal, is Bill Clinton, who's the one that sort of realized this dream, um, even though he spoke in a kind of populist way. He was able to, all of the sort of the talented Democrats of recent years are able to do it both ways. They can be the wonk, you know, the, the professional class policy wonk like Hillary Clinton or Michael Dukakis. And they can also, like Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton talks like Huey Long. Right. You know, he's he's your best friend in the world. You know, he's going to look out for you. Just, you know, don't look at what he's signing over there, you know. Right. Or, or Barack Obama is the same kind of thing. He's very much the policy wonk. The, you know, he's a professor at the University of Chicago. But he has this other side to him where he's able to switch it on, you know, and give these inspiring speeches. But by and large, the, uh, the, 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 the direction the party's taken is towards this professional class. That's who they want to serve. That's who they care about. And they, they the, you know, the industries that they, in which this, this class, uh, you know, can be found. So Wall Street, Silicon Valley, especially Silicon Valley these days, um, uh, big pharma, things like that. So are you just taking a, uh, are you just taking an intellectual victory lap here after the election? Well, I mean, I don't, where would I do that? <laughs> you you got to remember At this the is, apocalypse. Can, can I just, can I, can I, can I, uh, can I tell you guys something that's real interesting about this book? So the, the putting the book itself aside, uh, uh, generally speaking, the American, uh, 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 you know, the American intelligentsia is not interested in what I'm selling here and what I'm saying uh, right. and what I'm talking about. They're not interested. Uh, so NPR is not interested in this. Uh, this is this is not something that entrances like the op-ed page of the Washington Post or the New York Times. This is not an idea that anybody wants to talk about. And so, yes, I, if 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 I was invited to, yes, I would be taking a victory lap right now. <laughs> That's not the case. There's some, there, the pro, one of the big problems with this idea and with looking at the Democratic Party is that you are taking on an entire, you know, the, uh, a very powerful group of people. And I don't just mean the Democrats here. I mean this, you know, this white collar, you know, uh, Harvard educated, the Ivy League, that that group. And when you're saying that they have a class consciousness and they act, you know, to support one another and they have a way of looking at the world. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and to point that out, you're on the wrong side of it, you know? Right. So I'm well, learning that lesson. Okay. So Sarah, uh, obviously you did not start this book, uh, the day it came out. Um, why, why did you write necessary trouble? Uh, what, what got you moving on it and, and, and just give people, you know, a sense of what the book's about. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So the book is about social movements since the 2008 financial crisis. And so I had kind of been thinking about this as a thing, for a little while, I really came up with the idea for something that was sort of like the book I ended up writing um, in like 2012. And then it was kind of in the back of my mind for like a year and a half while I fiddled with trying to write a book proposal, which um, is a terrible thing to do to yourself. To and how? Book proposal is awful. And uh, yeah, and then I eventually, you know, knocked it into the shape that it is with the help of my excellent, excellent agent and now, um, some you, wonderful book editors. Well, what are you talking about when you talk about social movements here? What do you mean? I mean everything from, <clears throat> everything from the Tea Party to Black Lives Matter 
Um, that includes Occupy. It includes the Wisconsin uprising. It includes um, the Fight for 15, Moral Mondays, um, and um, yeah. And why do you, why do you see the financial crisis as the uh, the sort of important starting point for this this research? Well, you know, the financial crisis was a moment where it seemed like capitalism was committing suicide. Um, after all of those efforts of, you know, people to try to kill the thing, <laughs> it turned <laughs> out that we should just let it kill itself. Um, and, you know, I, I really think that that moment, sort of like the Trump election, we will probably look back on as something that fundamentally changed um, the way we think about politics and the, the system we live under, and that it also changed the way people um, respond to crisis. So, like, we had seen a ton of protests under the Bush administration, right? There were really big marches and things and stuff, and they didn't do anything because Bush just continued to be awful, um, whether or not we liked it. Right. And so people really started to think about different ways to um, exert power and, and what that looks like and really um, the reason that we went with necessary trouble as the um, the title is that we um, we're thinking about you know what is it that really makes these these movements stand out and it's disruption right it's like getting in the way it's not just um, you know we're going to have a march but it's like we're going to go on strike we're going to um, yeah. you know come into a congressman's op- office and scream our heads off we're going to you know get arrested in the street your book really thrillingly threads all those very mo- those various movements together and finds sort of a continuum i wanted to ask now this continuum has been sort of like interrupted by the trump presidency um when you look when you look back at what you've written and you're looking ahead to the future uh how do you do? You, do you see? Do you see the uh, necessary trouble as maybe a handbook or something to help us plot a course through what could be yet another series of crisis years? Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't think we're going to have any fewer crises in the next few years. <laughs> um, yeah, and and you noticed right that like in the days after the election that there are people in the streets almost immediately that there are high school students organizing walkouts in places like Omaha and Phoenix, right, um, in places that voted for Trump. Um, and yeah, like, and people are planning, um, you know, I think there was protests around the country yesterday. Um, there are things planned for the inauguration already, you know, there's sort of organizing meetings happening across the country. Um, more people are joining organizations like the Democratic Socialist of America, like, you know, things are, um, Trump is just, is another set of cracks in the, in the system. Um, he's also kind of a symptom of those things, right? So like, I start the book with this guy who had joined the Tea Party after um, the bank bailouts. And I really, now I really wish I could find that guy again because I bet he voted for Trump. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm thinking about this as, like, elite failure, right? Um, People have no faith in the existing political class, and Donald Trump was something else, (laughs) something else, you know, terrifying to me. Like, it's hard to, like, understand why somebody could look at Donald Trump and to think that he was going to be the solution to um, a crappy economy and, you know, feeling like your country isn't great anymore. But, it, you know, it, it seems to have been that kind of thing. It appears to have been true for a lot of people. Uh, well, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. We've been talking about our favorite books, man. And uh, really, no list of favorite books would be complete. Without our actual favorite book. Without our actual favorite book. And without involving the guy who actually sits next to me at work. Elliot Nelson is Hello. here. Hello. 
Elliot Nelson, he is the author of the Beltway Bible, a book for the toilet. By the toilet, not necessarily in the toilet, just to, a, a just book, to be clear. A book. A, bu- a book to peruse while one has some free time on their hands, right. let's say. Yes. Um, it's been, uh, so, so it's, it's quite a funny book. We've talked about this before. It's quite a funny book. It, but it's also really quite a substantive book. You really dove deeply into some arcane subject matter. And I think that it actually does a really good job informing people about how all the sausage in Washington gets made. Yeah, you know, it, there's actually something, I think, for folks who are distressed about Trump's election, um, and even conversely for those amped about it, I think they would both be well served by reading uh, the Beltway Bible, which is a sort of A to Z introductory guide to both Washington and the politics that, that govern our country. Um, I think for Trump detractors, they'll realize that the uh, uh, labyrinth uh, 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 maze of our federal bureaucracy and our politics are so deeply entrenched and so hard to uproot, even with intellectual uh, 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 witch hunts for you know climate change scientists. Uh, it takes a lot more than that to sort of undo American democracy, try as some people might. And similarly for Trump supporters who who are super amped about hashtag MAGA. Is it MAGA? 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 The gifts of the MAGA. The MAGA. The gifts yes. of the MAGA. Um, you know, Car- I, I... Carrier, <laughs> Carrier uh, gave up their hair to get some calls. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it, 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 it would... I think be instructive for Trump supporters to realize just what a Herculean task lays before them to, you know, undo civil society. It's harder than they think. Well, as political neophytes, they stand a lot to benefit from some of the things that you uh, you offer guidance in your book. Well, yeah, you know, it's from from the reports of Trump's meeting with Obama. I mean, he's not just asking Obama for help on how to govern the country. He's like half expecting Obama to leave him like microwave dinners in the fridge for when he leaves. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, the level of instruction, I think the president elect is seeking. I think, my, you know, I think he'd find a lot of answers in the book. Like he's going to leave like the TV remotes. Behind, yeah. Like yeah. you do. For for a house guest is like, make sure you turn this one on with this device. There'll be a really incongruous pink teddy bear placed right by the resolute desk in front of Trump that I think Obama will be monitoring just while he's gone. But. <laughs> well, it's a really funny book. I uh, literally ordered four copies to give to family members. Uh, Elliot, we love it. Congrats on the book being named one of the four best books of 2016 by your colleagues. Am I a top quartile or bottom quartile? Yes. You know, yes, <laughs> you, you are. You are. You sit atop. Good. Thank you. Um, thanks for being here. You bet. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I just want to take the time to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. Welcome back. Uh, I'm here very pleased today. We've got Arthur Delaney running alongside as normal. And we have a very special guest, Congressman Earl Blumenauer from the great state of Oregon is with us here. Uh, sort of a Christmas tradition. Absolutely. Um, now, every, Three years in a row, yes, I think. Yes, <laughs> That's a tradition. I think that, I think that definitely qualifies as, as a tradition. It's something that I know everyone here looks forward to. And just to bring readers in 
to the to the to the sort of like you know mise en scène I'm describing here is uh, Congressman Blumenauer. You have for the past three years come by our office uh, with the glad tidings and a gift for us yeah, that absolutely. has actually a lot of double and important meanings. Absolutely. Well, for years I've been involved with baking fruitcakes for the holiday season. Uh, it's come from, uh, it's metastasized actually almost to an obsession, uh, (laughs) this year over 400, uh, which I distribute to uh, family, friends, colleagues. Um, recently the, uh, famous Oregon, Portland, Oregon salt and straw ice cream has created a Congressman Blumenauer salt and straw fruitcake ice cream based on my recipe. Uh, which uh, we've added to the tradition and distributed here in Washington, D.C., because not everybody can make it uh, to Portland to sample. Um, Spread a little holiday cheer this year more than ever. I think it's needed. (laughs) Yes. And fruitcake is the appropriate metaphor, some would argue. Now, Congressman Blunauer, you wrote uh, a sort of long article about the zen of fruitcake, describing the process you go through and what it means for you. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well... As I mentioned, I've, I have been doing this for uh, over 20 years, um, but just getting into the process of the of the baking uh, when it started to go from uh, a dozen fruitcakes to over a hundred, sort of getting into the rhythm and thinking about what you go through, separating the eggs, and and what you're going to do in terms of using this as an excuse to connect with people in the holiday season because uh, we hand deliver most of uh, the cakes. Uh, so you get a chance to look people in the eye, have, uh, a, conversation. Provide, have a conversation. Yeah. We provided a little platter of fruitcake here for people to enjoy, a little of the ice cream. Um, and it, for me, uh, the rhythm of the process, coupled with the spirit of the season and connecting with people, uh, is uh, an important part of my holiday tradition. Well, I, let me just say that I ate the fruitcake. I, I thought it was really good. I've Very known good. fruitcake... As a, a weird, unpopular thing, I've been a fruitcake skeptic. Yeah, to be honest. but the, the fruitcake tasted great. It's like a, a dense cake with candied fruits in it, yeah. and the fruitcake ice cream. I'm very impressed by its ice cream with pieces of fruitcake in it. Yeah. Well, I must say that uh, I understand people who uh, are dismissive of fruitcakes that you need a chisel uh, to be right. able to. Uh, carve out something you might be able to eat. Uh, This does not have nuts. It's all, as you mentioned, candied fruits, currants, raisins, uh, a nice dense cake, a little bit of brandy to uh, help preserve it. Um, And it's a a fruitcake recipe that I've developed that I like, and I find that we can even win over some from fruitcake skeptics. If they don't like it, there's enough brandy they can use it for fire starter for their fireplace. Um, it's better a, than Pete. <laughs> or a, emergency provisions in case of the <laughs> apocalypse. Well, I could see St. Bernard's carrying <laughs> carrying the fruitcake Absolutely. around to, to stranded mountaineers. It would be an, actually a, a very good gift. Yeah, you turned me around on fruitcake better today. Saint Bernard's than, better St. Bernard's than drones. Now, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, the, uh, the what's interesting about the, the, the uh, salt and straw being involved in this is that this is also giving back. Absolutely. These are, are really remarkable corporate citizens in our community. Uh, uh, a woman and her uh, cousin just developed this, and it's uh, really spectacular ice cream. All local ingredients uh, is literally handmade. 
Um, and they uh, decided when they made uh, the Blumenauer fruitcake ice cream that they would dedicate all the proceeds to our local community cycling center that provides hundreds and hundreds of bicycles to young people who otherwise wouldn't get one uh, this holiday season. Um, and they actually match if people want to buy a bicycle uh, from the, uh, for $60 from the uh, community cycling center, they match it. Yeah. Uh, they'll match that gift. So it's just, I think, a, a remarkable expression. Kids uh, get the, the joy of cycling. We give the joy of giving, and we enjoy some great ice cream and fruit. Man, this all, is so wholesome. That's also so Christmassy. Every kid remembers the day they got woke up. I'm, and I'm glad you didn't got say that. Got a bike for Christmas. I'm, I'm glad you say didn't say that's so Portlandia. <laughs> Well, little, it goes it without little, saying. It's a little Portlandia, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, without being too much of the 1990s, it, it is. But it's still really great. I mean, every kid uh, who's ever gotten a bike for Christmas can tell you how much that meant to them. And it's great that uh, you're you're giving those feelings out to kids who wouldn't ordinarily have the that excitement of seeing that under the tree, which is yeah. I remember when I was a kid and I got my first bike for Christmas. I was I was thrilled. And mm. then I was terrible at biking for yeah. a long time. We think it, we think it's important. It's fun. All right. Well, people, uh, maybe we're going to blow up uh, fruitcake uh, for you. You might have to make several hundred thousand more fruitcakes next year. So <laughs> I don't know. Gird your loins for that. Um, but uh, Congressman Blumenhauer, thank you for being with us today. And uh, folks, if you're out there in Oregon, please check out the salt and straw Earl Blumenhauer's fruitcake recipe and because right. it all goes to a very good cause. They can, they can order it online. Yeah, and it's really delicious. Those guys make good ice cream. Re- recommend. Yeah, heartily. (laughs) All right, Congressman Blumenhauer, we look forward to having you again uh, uh, back on the show. Great. My best to you for the holidays. All right. Merry Christmas to everyone, and we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, my baby loves a bunch of authors, among them David Dayan, Thomas Frank, Sarah Jaffe, and Elliot Nelson. We're also joined by Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Dave Jameson. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you are there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. Have a safe and happy holiday season. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.